I mean, this book has everything. It's got war. It's got cowardice. It's got bravery. It's got treachery. It's got honor. It's got love. It's got lust. It's got hunting. It's unbelievably expansive. Hello, Book Society Podcast. We are here with SoCal's most inventive and accessible poet, Mr. Charles Harper Webb. He is a stand-up poet. He is a former pro guitar player and singer. My old job, my current job, but also my old job. He is a licensed psychotherapist. He is an English professor at CSU Long Beach, and he has won, among many others, the following awards. The Whiting Writers Award. Is it the Whiting Writers Award? Am I saying it right? Whiting is how they say it. The Whiting Writers Award. That's exactly how it's spelled. I just got it wrong. The Tufts Discovery Award. He's won a fellowship from the Guggenheim Foundation, my people. He's also a fly fisherman. This is just a small list of his awards, but he's won some really big, important ones. If you want to read Charles Harper Webb, if you haven't already, that's a bit of an anomaly. But if you want to read more of his stuff, you can find him in the American Poetry Review, the Paris Review, the Iowa Review, the Yale Review, the Harvard Review, Poetry Plowshares, the Southern Review, the Georgia Review, Tin House, Poets of the New Century, Best American Poetry, which is where they put the best American poetry, and the place where all the poets who visit this podcast seem to end up, the Pushcart Prize. I keep trying to get an interview with the Pushcart Prize people, but they're very busy reviewing poetry. But we'll get there. We'll get them on the show eventually. He is here for his first novel, although I think you published a novel in the UK before this one. Is that correct? Long time ago, when I was practically a zygote. All right. So this is your first novel as an adult human, and it's called Ursula Lake, Redhead and Press 2022. It's fantastic. We're going to talk about it. The book that Charles Harper Webb shows today is Fool's Crow by James Welsh. It's from Viking Press, originally published in 1986, although it feels like it was written in the 1890s. I don't know if I'm willing to say it's my favorite book that we've read for the podcast, but it is up there in the top five. I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of James Welsh. It's a fantastic book. It's a Native American narrative. James Welsh is actually a member of the tribe that he writes about despite his anglicized Napiquan name. Audience, before we get into this, this is one where you should pause the podcast, listen to another episode, read the book, and then come back to this one once you've read the book. This one is just so beautiful, I don't want to spoil it for everyone. One of the joys of doing this podcast is when someone suggests a book, I just say yes. And so I didn't know anything about this when I cracked it open. I just bought it, I opened it, and it is just such a beautiful and amazing book. So we'll start with the question that we ask everyone, which is, why did you pick this book? I picked it for the exact reason that you say. It's such a beautiful, amazing book, and it takes you and it puts you in the head and in the world of a Blackfoot Indian in 1870. It's an astounding book. I consider it really one of the four great American novels, including The Great Gatsby and Huckleberry Finn and Moby Dick and this. They say on the back, it's like the most profound act of recovery in American literature. Welch was born in 1940. He's dead now, unfortunately, but he probably knew people who either lived then or had parents that lived there. So it's unbelievable the way he evokes it. And he evokes the world of that time. I knew nothing about this book either until a guy that I teach with at Cal State Long Beach, Ray Zapata, told me, you got to read this book. And I read it and I just thought, how did I never know this book? That's how I felt when I read it. 
top four American novels. I might agree with you. I mean, it's definitely up there with those works. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. It really is. So for listeners who have read it or listeners who are going to ignore my suggestion and just not read it and listen to the episode anyway, God bless you. It's a book about the life of a Blackfoot Indian right on the precipice of the U.S. taking over Montana. It's northern Montana. And they roam around a bit. But, you know, it's in the area of the Missouri River where I fish quite a bit. Is that the Two Medicine River in the book? I think they call it Big River or something. That's one of the amazing things about it. For the listeners, he plunges you right into names which seem very foreign. They're in English for the most part, but I imagine they're translations from Blackfoot or something. And so you feel right away that you're in kind of an alien place, but you quickly acclimatize. And then you find that you're immersed in the culture. So the first time he says, the backbone of the world, thinking, what's that? What's that? But it doesn't take me too long to realize that's the Rocky Mountains. And he talks about the hooting of an ears far apart. And the hooting gives it away. And you think, oh, a great horned owl. And you can just see it. The black horn is like a buffalo. And they've got all these names. It's completely immersive. Yeah, one of the tragic things about it is that it really does bring you into this world. And the Bakuni's worldview, the way that he presents their worldview, makes perfect sense and is beautiful and evocative and descriptive. But it has a few pitfalls that make them such easy prey for white people. And one of the ones that I found to be so tragic and simple is that because the great chiefs are from the East, they associate them with the sun because they live where the sun comes up. Because if you're a Pakuni, you've probably never been to the Atlantic Ocean. So they associate them with this power that they may or may not have. The United States did not take this land by superior force. They took it by cunning and deceit and disease. And the Pakuni warriors were pretty much unbeatable in a battle, but they were basically just deceived and then they got smallpox. So their worldview allowed them to think that this was part of a grand plan, partly because the aggressors came from the place that the sun rose in the morning, which is heartbreaking. So you're an English professor. I'm going to ask you an English professor type question or a question that you might ask an English student. One of the books that started this podcast was Gilgamesh. We never actually have covered it. I just was talking to a friend about it and that's why we started the show. I'm sure you're familiar with it and most of the listeners are familiar with it, but it's really at its core a narrative about the difference between the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and the city lifestyle, what they have to offer. And it's about the transition from one to the other that happened in ancient Mesopotamia probably 9,000 years ago. This book is kind of the same thing. You know, it's the lifestyle of the farmer, of the eastern city dweller, and the Pakunis are essentially hunter-gatherers, and they have what seems like a better life. But the city, we call it the western life, seems to always win. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the Pakunis recognize this, the wise ones in the book, because the westerners are innumerable. There's so many of them, and they've got way better weapons. And they're pretty well remorseless. They just take and take and take. So I think that Fool's Crow's father, he recognizes this. We can't really fight these people. There's too many of them. They got too much medicine, and that medicine is in these repeating rifles and just the sheer 
military power and numbers, we're doomed. And nothing will stop them and nothing will placate them and they never stop coming. The way that the narrative is told is so, it's like linear, things happen and then all of a sudden there's stuff that happens in the spirit world. But it all sort of makes sense. What do you make of that and what does that say to you? I mean, you know, I don't know because I didn't live the world, but it seems to me that he is putting us into the world in which the spirit world is equally as real as the other world. I got a friend, the poet Richard Garcia, who grew up like that, that the dream world and the real world kind of fused. That's what seems to happen here. Something else I wanted to say about James Welch, the guy has such enormous humanity that he also can write from the point of view of the Napiquans, the whites, and with sympathy. I mean, this isn't a book in which you say, those bastard whites kill them all. Of course, sometimes they feel that way, of course. But there's a scene that I just was reading this morning as I was kind of remembering the book. And it's this guy who fled from the Civil War. He saw that the South was getting destroyed. And he came west and he tried this and that and this and that. He's very human, very real, very likable. And we watch him as he is confronted by probably Owl Child, one of the so-called renegade Bakunis, and he sees the gun pointed at him, and that's the last thing he sees. I mean, Welsh is able to take us into the humanity of everybody involved. That's astounding to me. That's one of the reasons I think it's such a great book, because, of course, he chooses sides because mostly we're in Fool's Crow's head, but he has a wider vision for humanness than that. And the tragedy that I see it is not so much a tragedy of Native Americans, although that's certainly there. It's the tragedy of being human and the way that this stuff happens. And it doesn't matter what race you are. That struck me, too. There's one particular scene the Pakunis go into the American fort, and it's just an offhanded observation that they notice the piece of cloth with the red, white, and blue and the white stars on it. And he says that each star represented a nation that they had conquered. Like just understanding it from the perspective of a Pakuni, of course, that's what they would say. We don't think of it that way, but that is what it is. I mean, that's exactly what it is. And the tragedy in this book and the tragedy in any genocide is that so much humanity is lost and nobody wins. There's no victory. Everybody is the worse for it. I guess we could call this how Native people might have thought because, you know, it's written by a Native person, but it's 100 years after his culture. And it's not in the language that their thought took place, which I think makes a big difference. But I think this is about as close as we can get to living on those plains. Yeah, that's what I think, too. Yeah, it's not the language, but by using those terms that seem like they come from the language, backbone of the world and all of the odd names and everything, you feel like this is about the best we can do. And Welsh said that he realized after he was grown and everything how much he had unconsciously absorbed, I guess, the ethos of the tribe just by being raised on the reservation, the Blackfoot reservation. And his mother and father were both native, but they were also, as so many natives are, part white. It's just a book of astounding humanity to me and exciting. What an adventure story. I mean, adventure after adventure after adventure, and they're brutal. 
they're not trying to sugarcoat anything. Everybody is human. Everybody is subject to failings. Everybody is trying to do the best they can, even the ones who are the worst. It's not like a name-calling book. It's a telling-it-like-it-is book from a point of view of somebody that it's very easy to relate to. Yeah. You know, White Man's Dog, who later becomes Fool's Crow, one of the first things we see him do is murder a child, basically. And the reason is he was on a raid, and the kid was going to go back and tell the camp, and everybody knows the stakes, and this is just what the game was. He felt bad about it, but he also knew that the kid was going to meet his relatives on the White Sands and that everybody was in. Yeah, this is the game they play. This is the life that they've had and the way of being that's gone on for hundreds of years anyway. I got a kick out of the fact that in the first interaction between Fast Horse and White Man's Dog, it's so understandable because these are two young men and they're basically breaking each other's balls. Well, especially Fast Horse is but they're throwing back these insults that sounded exactly like what me and my friends used to do. And so you immediately think, oh, of course, I get this guy. This guy isn't like a foreigner. This guy is me. Two young men just ribbing each other was such a relatable way to start. It's interesting how that seems kind of universal. Why do you think Welsh chose this particular moment in the Pakuni's history to write about? Because it's when everything changed. And so he could show the way it was when they were able to follow their traditional culture. And then this was the time when it became clear that it was doomed. We're right there at the turning point. So we get to see the Pikunis in their glory. And very quickly, we get to see them in their decline. And it's heartbreaking. There were some really eerie things in here that I think have with time become even more poignant. One of the things that they mention is the schools that they go above the medicine line, which is the Canadian border. This is never explained in the book, but I think just from context clues, the reason they call it that is because the Americans medicine doesn't work on the other side of the line. So like the Americans can't use their medicine over this line for reasons that the Pakunis may or may not even get, but they just know that if they go over this line, they're okay. But above the medicine line, they describe these Indian schools where you're taught to sit in a chair and wear clothes and do all these things and how some people go there, but they know that they're terrible places. And this has been known by Native people for centuries that these are terrible places, but it's just come out in the last year or so that they were just like burying people in the back. And I mean, just horrible stuff that the Canadian government had to officially apologize for. One of our previous guests, Dr. Paulette Stevies, was at the forefront of bringing all that stuff to light. When I first read her writing about it, I, I mean, I believed her, but you know, your first thought is like, this cannot be real. They cannot have been doing this in the 1990s, like while I was alive, but they were. And so these schools have been going on and being this force of cultural genocide and actual death and destruction for hundreds of years. And Welsh's people knew about this and nobody really even said anything until 2020. So Right. No, it's just part of the enormous power of this. I mean, this book has everything. It's got war. It's got cowardice. It's got bravery. It's got treachery. It's got honor. It's got love. It's got lust. It's got hunting. It's unbelievably expansive. 
That's another reason why I put it so high up in the pantheon. I mean, I would never argue about what's the greatest book in America or anything, but this one stands alone. If there's another book like this, I don't know what it is. So it could have its own category. One of the things that is so fantastic about it is that it's a native book without a white savior. It's not through the lens of the guy who comes in and shows them how to hunt with a gun. It's just about these two cultures, and they're both represented pretty fairly, I think. The whole thing is, even though it's from Fool's Crow's perspective a lot, it is third-person omniscient. So you get in the heads of everybody, and there's this scene where they're negotiating a treaty in the fort, and it's, you know, some, like, brigadier general and the equivalent of a brigadier general of the Pakunis. None of the major people showed up. This general, we just get in his head for a moment. I think it's General Sully or Major Sully. He says, I hope they agree to this because my country is going to take this land no matter what they do or say. And I want there to be less blood if possible. He's going to do his job. He's going to get it done. But he knows what he's doing is wrong. It's just powerful and horrible. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody that's sitting there going <laughs> and twisting their mustaches, you know, it's like these are real humans doing what real humans do. And sometimes with regret, sometimes with great regret, but doing it. Well, maybe that's part of the reason why the city life always wins. And I think it's because they're able to make things impersonal and to act with impunity at a great distance. Though Napiquan captain doesn't particularly want to exterminate the Pakunis. This is not something he wants to do. He doesn't think it's a good idea. But the people who are reading the newspapers in New York think that we have to solve the Indian problem, which is a nameless, faceless problem happening in Montana to them. And they are the ones who are voting and paying. And the Pakunis don't have this luxury. They're not Pakunis communicating with native people thousands of miles away who are there in great force. I think that there's something to that, just the way that that communication works, where someone who is in charge of making a decision to exterminate another human being can make that decision completely impersonally. Whereas when Fool's Crow kills someone, he has to kill them up close with a knife. It occurs to me, though, because everybody in this is so human, that if, for instance, the Bakunis all had repeating rifles and the crows had bows and arrows, I wonder how much mercy the Pakunis would show the crows. I have a feeling that they would be just as quick to wipe them out and make their women cry, as they say. You just don't get any simple answers in this thing. That's what, to me, makes it so great. It's a human tragedy that happens and a lifestyle that, for anybody like me, who loves the outdoors and has grown up in it and hunts and fishes and feels at his best, in the outdoors, my heart goes with them. You know, if they had the cojones to try to hunt a buffalo or something, I'd much rather do that than be sitting at a desk scratching out stuff or paying bills or something like that. Seems like so much of a cooler life. It's a little boy's fantasy to be able to have that life. But boy, Welch shows us the downside too. You know, some guy gets rolled over on by his horse and he's crippled for life. You know, somebody gets caught and they cut off his fingers, all of them. Hobbes is often misquoted as describing the life of a hunter-gatherer as nasty, brutish, and short. From a Western perspective, 
I guess in what we consider nasty, like not having the living conditions that we're used to with indoor plumbing, I guess you could consider it nasty. And I think that the Pakuni's life could definitely be considered short. You could also consider it brutish by our own standards, just because their violence was personal rather than at arm's length, the way that we conduct it. But I don't think that their lives were nasty. I think their lives seemed to be wonderful. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it brutish, but brutal, no question. I mean, nature is not a sentimentalist, but they're part of it. And I love the way they just flow from thing to thing, and they have their explanations for stuff. But the spirit world, which is easy for me to translate into the world of the dreams and the unconscious, that's so real to them. And I find that just incredibly beautiful. As a writer who's trying to mine that part of my brain all the time, I just find it almost Edenic that they can live in that close proximity to the dream world. Well, Charles, you could always find Jesus if you haven't found him already, because as a lifelong atheist, when I'm reading this stuff, him going to the spirit realm and talking to the sun god's widow or whatever it was, doesn't sound any different to me than when an evangelical tells me they talk to Jesus. It's a hallucination that you're having. Jesus, as I recall, went into the desert, that whole thing where he met Satan and Satan offered him three different things. This is a vision quest, man. I mean, it's just flat out a vision quest. For all we know, he might have had some hallucinogenic help because everybody did. If you believe that the spirit world is important and real, anything that can help you get there is sacred. And so, yeah, if it's peyote, okay. If it's privation, if it's starvation, if it's being out in the heat, whatever it is, going up in the mountains where you're way far away from everything and chanting all day, whatever it takes to get you there. And it's so real. It's interesting that we in the West, the tech bros of the world are coming back to this as a way of finding themselves, of taking peyote with a shaman, with a guide. And yeah, it's really a casualty of the drug war that we think of anything that alters your mind as something that is horrible to do. Some things are and some things aren't. And that's just is what it is. We'll be back with Charles Harper Webb next week. And we're going to talk about his fantastic book, Ursula Lake. And we'll talk a little bit more about Jesus on peyote. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and Santiago Ramones, who does all the editing and is really great at it. He has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is really good too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Whatever it takes to get you there. And it's so real. So look for Charles Harper Webb and I's upcoming collection called Jesus on Peyote. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do a little collaboration. Jesus does shrooms. <laughs> yep. <laughs>